Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the Fortress of the Mind podcast. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about a moral problem that I noticed when I was rereading one of my favorite books, which is called Prisoners of the Japanese by the Australian writer Gavin Dawes. Great book, fantastic book. I think it was published back in the mid-90s, 94, 93, somewhere around there. And I like to read it every now and then to remind myself what real suffering is all about. Because the book is filled with anecdotes of actual stories by allied prisoners of war that were captured by the Japanese at various battles in the Pacific during the early years of the war and had to serve out periods of incarceration in these hell holes that lasted years in some cases, three years or more, right up until the end of the war. And these guys endured incredible suffering, the likes of which I don't think really is appreciated today in any extent. Nothing at all like what was going on in Europe. Allied prisoners of war in Europe were comparatively well-treated by Germany. But it was an entirely different story in the Pacific. These guys were starved, beaten, worked to death, literally. And I wanted to talk about a moral problem that came up when I was rereading some of the anecdotes in there because I thought it was something that really illustrated a lot about the need and the continuing applicability of moral and ethical codes for modern man and why those things are important. And as you know, you know, I've published my translation of Cicero's On Duties, which appeared in early July, and a discussion of these prisoner of war camp moral issues really shows the continuing applicability and the continuing relevance of moral and ethical problems for us in society today. And also I think, as you'll find out, as you'll hear as I go into it, I think that this story tells a lot about contemporary American society and maybe tells us something about our our own culture that maybe we would rather not know. Things that you never hear about. Because there is a dark side to American culture. There is a dark side. There is an evil side that never gets talked about. You know, we're so caught up in our own self-congratulatory world, this world that we live in, that we forget that sometimes... Not everything about the United States is great and wonderful. There's a dark side. And that's true of any country, true of every country. But I think it highlights all the more reason why it's important for us to maintain a moral balance in our lives, which will prevent us from going over the cliff. Because if you think these things don't matter, think again. If you think these things don't matter, you're wrong. They matter profoundly. And they're more important than you ever realize until you come face to face with things that are truly evil and for which there's no other word to explain them. So we're going to talk a little bit about this prison camp moral issue. But first, before I actually read the story, the anecdote, I want to paint a little bit of a background here. We have to understand that in the early years of the war, after... 1941 in the Pacific, 
tens of thousands of Allied prisoners, British, Americans, Dutch, uh, some natives like Filipinos, were herded into prison camps and they were kept there for many years and they were denied all the basic necessities. Food was at a premium. People were starving. Okay, so food was in extremely high demand. Okay, and there was slave labor. Men were ordered to build, uh, to to uh, to build railroads, to clear fields, to do all sorts of of basically pointless slave labor. Uh, part of it was to keep the Japanese army occupied and help the war effort. Part of it was just pure sadistic pleasure, really. The less mouths to feed, the more efficiently the war machine could operate. So this is the background, and this is what we need to understand. And there were these camps dotted all over the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, which is what Japan called its empire. And some of them were in Southeast Asia, Philippines, Southeast Asia. And towards the end of the war, some of them were moved up in ships to mainland Japan to work in factories in mainland Japan. Now, I'm not saying all this to uh, bash the Japanese. Um, I'm simply using this historical example as an example to illustrate moral problems that I think we should be aware of. So let me let me uh, read right from Mr. Dawes's book, and then we'll discuss a little bit about the problem that he talks about. And what he's doing, he's talking about the prison camps or the factories, the, the, the prison camp factories in, in Japan proper, where the POWs were moved in the later years of the war. He says, uh, well, I should also say that this, this anecdote involves rice trading, trading in rice. Rice was the principal food, if you want to call it that, of the prisoners of war. And every prisoner had a rice ration of sorts. He had to scrounge to get other types of food, but everyone in theory was allocated a ration of rice. Was allocated a ration of rice. And of course, anytime you get large groups of men together, you're going to have gambling, you're going to have um, games of chance, you're going to have smokers, you're going to have non-smokers, and all that needs to be understood here. But let me go ahead and read from the book. And he says, Japan brought out the truly hard traders. That was bound to happen. By the time the POWs were unloaded at Moji, they had been shaken down so often the average man had practically nothing left to trade with. In Japan itself, the whole country was being shaken down. That was what losing a war meant, being stripped of everything. So in the Japan camps, there was nothing but the big black market of places such as Changi or Bicycle Camp or Kabanatuan or Bilibid early in the war or even the railroad base camps in Thailand in 1944. In Japan, it took smart men to come out ahead in trading, and more and more, it took hard men. Serious trading started with a man so hungry he could not stand it. He had to have more rice. If he had nothing to pay with and no collateral, he would go to a trader and borrow the rice, and the trader would charge him interest. One rice ration now for rice and soup later, or one and a half rices, or two rices. This kind of deal had a history in the United States Army. Before the war, if a man developed an urgent need for a few beers or a woman or both, but he was strapped for cash between paydays, he would go to the barracks money lender. 
Every barracks had a moneylender, as often as not the paymaster in business for himself. Six for nine was common, meaning six dollars now for nine on payday. It was outrageous interest, 50% in ten days or even a week, but it was either that or not go to town. This was called borrowing on the jawbone. There were different stories about where the expression came from. One version was that in the Philippines before the war, the native women who did the American soldiers' laundry used to ask for extra money for soup, jabon. Everybody knew the extra was not for soap. It was squeeze, graft, cumshaw. But everybody paid it, and along the way the word got attached to borrowing at heavy interest on a verbal contract on the jawbone. A trader could start out in the morning, lending at lending a breakfast against the evening meal. The evening meal traded at two breakfasts, 100% interest in one day. The men would come back from work at dark, cold and so hungry that for an extra dinner they would trade two breakfasts. The next morning the trader would trade those breakfasts again the evening meal. A man might be so down he was willing to go even further into debt for the, for the sake, just once, of a full belly. Everybody needed rice. Serious smokers had to have their nicotine. Some of them, in urgent need, would even trade all away. It would even trade away all their next cigarette ration for a single smoke, meaning that for one cigarette now they would be paying back five or even ten later. Cigarettes would keep, but cooked rice would go bad, so a trader could not maintain a big physical inventory. He had to be able to think ahead, juggle rice going out with rice coming in. What he was doing was trading in commodities futures. Some men could not tell a good trade from a bad one, not even to save themselves, and the hard traders were certainly not going to be looking out for anybody but number one. There were men trading their rice away for cigarettes and smoking themselves all the way to serious malnutrition. Or they were borrowing so heavily against future rice that when their debts came due, they could not pay in full. They would be bankrupt in food. They would have nothing to eat, or less than nothing. No one forced anyone to borrow. For every winner there was going to be a loser, and if a man came out badly on the wrong side of trading, if any number of men died, the traders thought, well, those were the breaks. The traders thought the wounds were self-inflicted. Take the extreme case. If a man smoked away his next week's rice in advance or borrowed rice until he owed more than he could pay back without starving, then he was futures trading on margin with his own life on the line. Trading could go all the way to the death. There were some hard traders who watched men on the wrong side of their trades die, and so did other traders. Of course, a trader was never willing to think of himself as straight-out killing other men. There were hard traders who would say that the losers really wanted to die, that they were weak sisters, that they did not have the guts to kill themselves, so they would eat up big on the jawbone until they got cut off and die that way or go out smoking. When POWs of other nationalities came to Japan and ran up against these hard American rice traders, they were staggered. The Dutch were supposed to be a nation of traders, but they would have nothing to do with trading to the death. The Australians were horrified. They had nothing like it in their Southeast Asia camps, 
and when they first laid eyes on it in Japan, they could not believe what they were seeing. Charging interest on rice, it was simply beyond their tribal comprehension. Australians would cheat and lie and steal without blinking an eye, at least outside their own tribe. They were famous for it. Some of the biggest racketeers at Changi and in the railroad base camps were Australians. But Australians could not imagine doing men to death by charging interest on something as basic to life as rice. That was blood-sucking. It was murder. Within little tribes of Australian enlisted men, rice went back and forth all the time. But this was not trading on commodities futures. It was sharing. It was Australian tribalism. And the British, even if they were called a nation of shopkeepers, they stuck to moral principles. Late in the war, some British were in a camp in northern Honshu when a draft of Americans came in. One of them was a rice trader. He had been in five camps already, and in every one he traded rice, and he had nothing against branching out among the British. But the senior British officer gave him a stern lecture. This, he said, we do not tolerate. The trader just laughed, his American laugh, and said, Boy, you've got a lot to learn. But he never could make headway among the British. All right. So that's the story of the moral conundrum of the rice traders in Japanese prison camps in the Second World War. As you heard, these were guys who were willing to trade all the way to the death with men who were supposedly their comrades, who were supposed to be their brothers in arms, even though they were in a prison camp. They were doing this. They were trying to extract profit from their fellow man and could not have cared less if they used their weaknesses against them to trade until they died. Now, I ask you, what do you think Cicero would have said of this sort of behavior? Well, we already know what the British thought. The British were horrified. The Australians were horrified. The Dutch were horrified. But yet, this type of thing went on amongst the Americans. Why is that? Why is that? I think the answers probably tell us some things that we would rather not know about ourselves. That maybe our culture of unrestricted individualism and entrepreneurial capitalism is not always the greatest thing in the world. Not always. Because this is the thing. Stress and hardship bring out the truth in people. That's one of the things that I noticed. I was never in a prison camp, obviously. But I was in the military, and I did observe myself and other men in situations and conditions of extreme stress. And one of the things that I always noticed was a man's true character comes out when he's under stress. If you put a man under enough stress and enough strain and enough pressure, he will reveal for you his true character. He will reveal his true character, and you will see it. So I ask you, this story of the rice traders, what does this say about us? Maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. Maybe it's just an isolated example, and I'm picking something that has no applicability or relevance to the modern world. But I don't think so. I think if you take a hard look at the history of our country in recent years, the plunder, 
the graft, the fraud, the lying, the scamming, you'll see a lot of similarities with how the behavior of those at the top matches the behavior of the Japanese prison camp rice traders, the traders and commodities futures on other men's lives. It's murder. It's murder. Now let's see what Cicero would have said about this sort of thing. What I've done here is to turn to Book 2 of On Duties. If you have your copy of On Duties in front of you, and you should all have it in front of you, if we turn to Book 2, Chapter 6, in the paperback version, that's page 170, Cicero says, Therefore this one proposition ought to be the objective of all men, that what is advantageous to a single citizen and what is advantageous to the group as a whole should be the same. When one person takes for himself, with disregard for the common welfare, the connective tissues of fellowship among citizens are dissolved. And so if nature directs that one man should offer help to another man simply because he is a fellow man, whoever he may be, on account of this same motive then, it necessarily follows that this common advantage is in accordance with nature. If this is so, we are all governed by one and the same law of nature. And if this statement itself is true, then we are prohibited from violating another person by the laws of nature. Since the first proposition is true, the last one must also be true. For it is indeed absurd to say, as some do, that they would take nothing wrongfully from their parents or siblings to use for their own benefit, but would, but would apply a quite different rule with regard to the rest of their fellow citizens. These people maintain that no law and no social bonds exist for the sake of the common welfare among citizens. This sentiment pulls apart all sense of social order in a state. Those who advocate for the human rights of citizens, but deny those rights when it comes to foreigners, destroy the common fellowship of mankind. Once honorable treatment for all is taken away, kindness, goodness, and justice are, without exception, destroyed. For the tightest bond of the social order is that we consider it more against nature for one man to take from another for his own benefit than it is to suffer any kind of personal harm, whether it be to one's body, property, or even one's soul. Harms of this sort are inconsequential when compared with justice, for justice is by far the most important virtue, the empress and mistress of them all. What a great statement that is. What a sublime statement and a sublime indirect condemnation of the behavior of those who would trade to the death, who would harm their fellow man for their own benefit. So I think what this anecdote shows is the continuing applicability of moral problems and ethical problems that everyone faces. And this is just one. This is just one of an infinite number that we could have taken to use. It just so happens that it's a good example, and it's a dramatic example. And maybe, just maybe, it tells us some things about our culture here in America that we would rather probably not know. So keep that in mind. This will conclude our podcast here at Fortress of the Mind. I'm Quintus Curtius. 
Good night.